Well, scripture that I would like to uh, read and for us to look at this morning is Matthew chapter 17, verses 22 and 23. Just two verses today. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill Him. And He will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, with the psalmist we pray, open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from Your law, from Your Word. Open our eyes because we're blind without You. Open our eyes for the purpose that we might behold, that we might see, we might look and understand wonderful, glorious truths from Your Word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may have a seat. If you've been paying attention over the last few months, you probably notice that our scripture reading today, these two verses, sound oddly familiar. And that's because in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 21, we read these words. From that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now in that passage, we have the very first explicit warning that Jesus gave to His disciples concerning His impending sufferings and death. Now, the passage that we read today, verses 22 and 23 of chapter 17, are the second such warning. And as we continue through Matthew's Gospel, we will, we will read another one in the future. Now, when we come to a text like this that sounds very familiar, we might be tempted to jump to a couple different conclusions. The first is, and if we were of the, the uh, critical school, we might be tempted to say that this is just a, a one-for-one repeat of what we've already read. In other words, Matthew just got a, a little sloppy in his gospel record, in his narrative here, and he just basically rewrote the exact same thing. He recorded the same events. Or we might be tempted to conclude that this is a restating of the exact same truth just at a different time using slightly different words but basically saying the exact same thing. Well, let's just compare these two things for a minute, these, these two different warnings. In Matthew chapter 16 verse 21, Jesus tells us His destination and remember 
in all of this, and from that point, we are looking toward the cross. He tells us of his destination. He must go to Jerusalem. And he said that he must suffer many things at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. But he didn't tell us what he would suffer. Is he going to suffer just more questions, more testing? Will it be a verbal assault? What will, it, what will he suffer? He doesn't say. He will just suffer many things. But he did say that he will be killed. But he doesn't tell us how he will be killed. He doesn't tell us by whom he will be killed. He just says he'll be killed. Now, do we assume in chapter 16, well, it'll be those religious leaders. Well, he doesn't say that. He just says he will suffer many things, but then he will be killed. And in both, he says he will be raised. Remember in the first account, Peter rebuked him. Then we come to chapter 17 and we read a very similar warning again. Here he says he will be delivered. Now that assumes that there are two parties. One party doing the delivering and one party receiving that which is being delivered. But he doesn't say who the deliverers will be. And he doesn't say to whom he will be delivered. He just says he'll be delivered. He does say he'll be delivered into the hands of men, but he doesn't say who those men are. What men? He does say they will kill him. That is, those men. He's going to be delivered into the hands of some men, and those men will kill him. They will be his killers. Now, if we we put these two puzzle pieces together, we get just a little bit of a fuller picture. Jesus must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer something at the hands of religious leaders. He will then be delivered into the hands of other men who will then kill Him. You see, what Jesus is doing is He is progressively revealing to His disciples specific details of what lies ahead. In John's Gospel, while speaking of His looming departure, Jesus says, I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. In other words, all of, all of these foreshadowings and these foretellings are so that when it happens, they can say, okay. They won't be caught off guard. So Matthew, as he records this, as an evangelist, is preparing his readers for Golgotha. Jesus, as a good shepherd, as the good shepherd, is preparing his followers for Golgotha. He's getting them ready. All of us together are on this journey preparing for the cross. Now that being said by way of introduction, what I want to do now in the manner of exposition is just dig down a little deeper into this statement that Jesus makes, that the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill Him. My prayer has been that we would be able to see, as we look at this, we would be able to see with great profundity, with great clarity, the penetrating reality of our Lord's words. 
That we would, after we read this, or, or as we study this, like the men who heard Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, the Word of God would, would slice through our chest cavity and pierce our hearts, and we would, we would feel it. Because when we read a passage like this, we're often tempted to just to glide right over it. Oh yeah, I've heard that before. And we, we move on to the next cool story about the fish and the, the mouth and the, the coin in the mouth and we, we don't pay much attention to these restating. So I want to unpack this statement under three headings as we just dig down into this, this prophecy. First we'll look at the subject designated. Second we'll look at the humiliation described, and then thirdly, we will look at the foreknowledge displayed. So first, the subject designated here in Jesus' statement. Examining the subject of Jesus' statement, hopefully, will give us reason, again, to to stand back and, and consider it more deeply, to be challenged again or, or pressed again to, to remember what it is we believe about God's Word, that, that every word is inspired, that, that, that none of Scripture can be broken, that, that all of it will be preserved forever, that heaven and earth will pass away, but God's Word will never pass away, that not a jot, not a tittle will pass away. It's all beneficial. It's all edifying. And so when we come to this statement and we consider just the subject of his, of his statement, we should be taken back. Again, having already read such warning, we're tempted to just glide over this with a sense of boredom, a sense of familiarity. When we come to a passage like this that, that deals with the obvious contents here, namely the death and resurrection of Jesus, for us, even more so, we are tempted to treat it with familiarity. There's so many people you could ask, what is the gospel? And they would say, well, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Or Jesus dying on the cross for the sins of the world. Or or God sent His Son to die on the cross for sinners. All of these true statements, and yet... How often does that pierce the heart of the seasoned saint? When you say that, when you hear that, does it cut you to the heart? How often do these statements take our breath when we realize what's being said when Jesus says, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men? So let's read this. Let's try to hear this as if we had never read it. Jesus said to them in verse 22b, the Son of Man. And so here we have the subject designated, the Son of Man. This is review for us, or it should be. But again, let's hear it with new ears. Some might consider this beating a dead horse because every time we read this phrase or this title, I at least make a reference to to its origin. Hopefully we wouldn't consider this beating a dead horse because we will spend all of eternity, quote, beating this dead horse, exalting the, the eternal glory of Christ. The Son of Man is Jesus' favorite title for Himself. He's speaking in third person about Himself, and He takes this title, the Son of Man, 
from a vision that the prophet Daniel had and records for us in Daniel chapter 7. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has two separate visions. The first vision is of one who he calls the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days is seated on a throne. The Ancient of Days is is served by an innumerable host of angelic beings. The Ancient of Days is a reference to God the Father. But then we come to verse 13 of Daniel chapter 7, and he says, I saw in the night visions. And let's just walk through this and ask ourselves, what kind of figure is Daniel seeing? This is what Jesus has in the back of his mind when he says, the Son of Man. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven... There came one. So Daniel, having already seen God the Father from the perspective of the throne room of heaven, looks from a heavenly perspective and he sees coming into view, into the picture, one. One arriving onto the scene of the courtroom of heaven. And this one comes, as it were, riding on a chariot of clouds. He comes with the clouds of heaven. So we would have to assume that at some point, this one, outside of this throne room perspective, has been taken up by these clouds, and he now comes with these clouds into the throne room. With the clouds there came one, Daniel says, like a son of man. He's like a son or like the offspring of man, the offspring of humanity. Now notice he does not say there came one who was a son of man. He says there came one who was like a son of man. See, Daniel knows I'm looking from the perspective of the throne room of heaven. I'm in the presence of of. God the Father, and I see one coming on the clouds. He appears to be the offspring of humanity, but because of the setting, I know this is not just a regular human. He appears to be a human. Outwardly, in outward appearance, he looks like a human, but he's riding on the clouds into the presence of the Ancient of Days. He's like a son of man, but not a one-for-one exact representation. There's something a little different about this one. So this one, like a son of man, came to the Ancient of Days. Again, from somewhere else. He had been away from the Ancient of Days and he comes and now returns on the clouds and he was presented before him. That is, he was, as it were, paraded into the presence of the Father. He was displayed. He was presented as if he were a a symbol or evidence of great achievement. He was presented before him, before God the Father. It says, and to him was given dominion. 
That is, upon his arrival, this one who is like a son of man was given dominion. A dominion is sovereign rule that is granted by legal authority. So upon his appearing into the courts of heaven, as he rides on the clouds, this one, like a son of man, is then granted sovereign rule by the Ancient of Days. To him was also given glory. That is, he was given dignity. He was given honor. He was given majesty and nobility, grandeur and loftiness, regality and nobility. It was granted to him. So as he enters into the throne room of heaven, he is endowed with a certain quality that would grant him and require of everyone around him the utmost respect and esteem. He's given that. He was also given a kingdom. Upon his coming into the presence of the ancient of days, this one who was like a son of man was given a domain of rule, a, a realm over which he would exercise his supremacy as king. He was given domain, dominion and glory and a kingdom that, or to the end that, all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. That is, this dominion and this glory and this kingdom were granted to Him. They were bestowed upon Him in such a manner that all of these various groups and all of these distinctions, no matter their lesser magistrates, no matter their lesser emperors or kings, they should all pay their due reverence to Him who is the King over all other kings. That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. Then Daniel switches and speaks in, in present terms. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. Right now, Daniel says, right now, as he receives it, it is right now an everlasting dominion. So this, this realm over which he reigns, this, this sovereign rule is secluded to a specific time period. And that specific time period has no end. It's an unending time period. Unlike other kings, he'll never pass the crown. He will never pass on the throne. There will not be another. He's not training up sons in, in the court, training them how to be dignified, training them in, in matters of, of foreign affairs so that they can someday take over the throne and operate like a king. He doesn't do that because he will never pass down the throne. There will be no end to his dominion. It says his Dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away at His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Unlike the earthly powers, and if you were to read the beginning of Daniel chapter 7, there are all of these visions of these other kingdoms, and they've all crumbled. And he says this kingdom is presently, right now, indestructible, invincible. It cannot be defeated. It, it can't be destroyed. So who did Daniel see? Who is this one like a son of man? Daniel saw the resurrected Jesus of Nazareth after he had ascended into the clouds, 
outside of Galilee. Picture this from two different perspectives. His disciples stand on the hill staring into the sky. And two men appear and they say, Men of Galilee, why do you stand staring into the sky? This Jesus whom you've seen ascend into the clouds will return in the same way in which you've seen Him depart. That's what's happening on earth. At the exact same time, Daniel sees one like a son of man come before the Ancient of Days and he's presented before him. He's presented before his father as successful, as the conquering, redeeming lamb who has just prevailed over sin and Satan in response to having kept his end of the covenant of redemption The Father then keeps His end of the covenant of redemption by handing over to Him all authority in heaven and on earth. As as Psalm 2 puts it, He hands over to Him the nations as His inheritance. In other words, as Daniel sees in this vision, hundreds of years before the incarnation, he sees the eternal Word of God cloaked in human flesh in a vision concerning what would take place after the ascension. Daniel sees deity having already been cloaked in humanity. He saw one like a son of man, but very much different than all other sons of men. So this is the subject of Jesus' statement. One like a son of man. One with no beginning and no end. One who has eternally existed in the bosom of His Father. One who had eternally occupied the courts of heaven. One who had eternally existed with 10,000 times 10,000 hovering day and night waiting to serve Him. This is the beloved Prince of Glory. That's what we read of when we read the Son of Man. So we read all of that into the title, the Son of Man. But we also, because we are reminded of the glory and the power and the regality and the nobility and the the kingship of Jesus, we are reminded of, of all that's just taken place in Matthew's Gospel. You can turn back to Matthew. Back in Matthew's Gospel, the things that Matthew had just recorded concerning the glory of Jesus. In chapter 16 and verse 16, we found out Jesus is God's Messiah. In verse 27, Jesus is the judge of all the earth. In chapter 17, in the transfiguration, we saw the the bright shining glow, the Shekinah glory of Yahweh shining in the face of Jesus. We saw Moses and Elijah representing the law and the prophets testifying to Jesus as the fulfillment of all of redemptive history. Last week we saw Jesus' authority over demonic power. Now we take all of that glory and all of that power and all of that royalty and all of that majesty that has existed for eternity, that has entered into Humanity taken on human flesh and we read it into the title, The Son of Man. Jesus is speaking of Himself. He's speaking of His eternality. He's speaking of His present humanity. And He's referring to His coming glory at His ascension. 
glory for which He prayed, Father, glorify me with the same glory I had with you before the world began. And He received it. So this is the subject designated in Jesus' statement. The Son of Man. But notice secondly, what He says about the Son of Man in the humiliation described. Now if we're not already trembling, this is where we should begin to tremble. This is where our hearts should begin to break if they're not already broken. Take all of that arsenal of knowledge about Jesus, the Son of Man, eternally glorious, eternally existing in the presence of His Father. Use that as the lens through which you read. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Now hands can be taken both literally and figuratively. Hands are hands. They will, in reality, in actuality, in time and space, put their physical hands on the Lord of glory. Men will put their hands on the King. Figuratively, hands represent control. Hands represent the power to direct as if you were gripping the steering wheel. You've probably heard phrases like this. We can't let this information fall into the wrong hands. Well, we know information can't actually fall into physical hands per se. What we're saying is we don't want this information to fall into the wrong Control, the wrong power. Or to use it positively, if you were house-sitting for someone and they're about to leave, you would say, don't worry, your house is in good hands. You're not saying literally, I'm going to put my hands around your house. You're saying, while you're gone, all of your things will be under or in good control. That's the figurative way we might use the term hand. So not only will the Son of Man be delivered into the physical hands of men, but He will be delivered into their control. He will be handed over to their power and their determination. They will direct Him as they wish. They will force Him as they wish. And it is men who will do this. Now before he made a reference to suffering and he said he would suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes speaking specifically of the religious leaders who had already been challenging him. Here he just makes a reference to men almost like a play on words. The Son of Man, the Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of men. Just mere men. The Son of Man Deity cloaked in humanity will fall into the hands of men. Humanity only. Created things. And so here we begin to get a glimpse of the humiliation, the humility that's being described. The eternal Word of God cloaked in human flesh and then manhandled by filthy men. 
Men, if it was your wife, you would be shivering, fighting mad if someone came and said, I saw this guy roughing your wife, pushing her around and kicking her and mistreating her. You'd be mad. And they did it to the king of glory. And note the manner it says he's about to be delivered into the hands of men. He says of himself, the son of man, he will be passively taken and delivered into the hands of men. He's going to be handed over to them, turned over into their custody. The subject is acted upon. He's going to receive it. And they, these men, these mere men, will kill him. They will take his life. Again, passively, he's handed into their hands and they're going to act upon him in such a way as to take his life. All that he is, all that he has eternally ever been, all of that glory, all of that power, all of that nobility, handed over and killed. The words of Isaiah describe it very well when he says he was oppressed... He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Listen to this analogy this, this, to describe the passivity like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. From boundless splendor, in glory to being led like a lamb to the slaughter. Are you beginning to see the expanse of humiliation there from where he went to his destination? Now I think Luke in his gospel tries to to point this out. Look how he makes this transition from the previous exorcism. He says, And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. You see how how Luke does that. It's almost as if at the very moment of their marveling at his abilities... Jesus stops them and says, Okay, now you see what you got there? You see that? You get it in your mind. Keep that. Now he's going to be delivered. That, all of that is going to be delivered. Make sure you keep that in your mind. Limitless, unmatched power on the one side and suffering and death at the hands of men on the other side. Hands that he himself had designed. Hands that he himself, at the very moment of his being delivered over, he would uphold by the word of his power, for he upholds all things by the word of his power. And they would deliver him over. Filthy Roman hands, stained with his own blood, that only because of him and in him are held together, for in him all things hold together, would take hold of the Lord of glory, the beloved Son of His Father, and they would force Him to the cross. So that's what we're seeing in this statement. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men 
and they will kill him. A chasm of condescension we cannot even begin to comprehend. Notice thirdly then, the foreknowledge displayed. Isaiah prophesied that he was like a lamb led to the slaughter. That he didn't open his mouth like a sheep before her shearers. It's silent, just quiet. Now do you know why a lamb is quiet as it goes to the slaughter? Do you know why a sheep doesn't run from its shears, why lambs don't cry out for help, why they don't put up a fight, why as they are prepared for the butcher's block, about to have their blood spilled out, why they don't cry out? It's because they have no idea what's about to happen. They don't know. They have no clue what they're about to undergo. They don't have a reference point for death. They don't understand Jesus was not a lamb. He was like a lamb. That is, He was led like one passively. He was silent like one, but He wasn't just like a lamb. Notice the difference. Jesus has already told His disciples one time in chapter 16 explicitly, I'm going to die. He tells it here again, I'm going to die. What does that tell us? Jesus knew what the plan was. He knew it. And he's telling his disciples what will happen in the future. And as he tells them, he's displaying that he has divine foreknowledge about the events that will take place. In John 13, we read that he knew who was to betray him. Speaking of Judas, he knew early on, Judas is going to betray me. In John 12, 33, after he made that statement, and I, when I am lifted up, will draw all people to myself, he said this, talking about the kind of death or to show what kind of death he was about to die. In other words, when I'm stood up on that Roman cross and, and lifted up above the heads of the crowd that will jeer at me, at that moment is when the gospel, when, when Satan is defeated and the gospel it then will begin to go forth to the nations. I will draw all types of people to myself. He knew what kind of death he was going to die. All that great agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating as, as drops of blood, what was that about? As he, as he prays to his Father, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your be, yours be done. Why pray that? It's because he knew that he was about to hang on the cross and bear the full weight of his, of his Father's wrath for the sins of His people. He knew. Jesus knew who would betray Him. He knew at whose hands He would suffer. He knew into whose hands He would be delivered. He knew who would be His executioners. He knew that He would become a curse on the cross. So He displays here His foreknowledge in telling them again. Now what's my point in all this? As you're thinking, envision again. Envision the Son of Man in, in all of His eternal glory. Consider the Son of Man as He's handed over to be killed. And remember that He knew the whole time what was about to happen. Here's my point. He did it anyway. 
anyway. That Jesus went to that cross knowing full well what was about to happen and he did it anyway. Knowing. In John chapter 10, Jesus says this, and listen to this closely. For this reason, the Father loves me. Because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Now notice, Jesus at some point in Eternity received a charge from his father. What was that charge? Son, come here. Go. Lay down your life for those people and take your life back up again. The father loves him. Why? Because he lays down his life to take it back up again. He has a special love for his son. And in the Bible, we talk about special love. We call that covenant love. He has a covenant with His Son. Why? Because He agreed to lay down His life and then take it back up again. In other words, Jesus knew before the ages began that He would come and suffer at the hands of men and die. And He agreed to it. He volunteered for the job. John Bunyan wrote that the son of King Shaddai leapt for joy over the hills as the father called him to go and be the captain of the salvation of the town of Mansoul. He, he volunteered for the job. Now why would he do that? Why would he volunteer for this? Well, you know yourself better than most people. You know your thoughts. Men, you knew what you looked at yesterday, what you watched, what you said to your wife, what you neglected to do, what you should have been doing, but what you did instead. Ladies, you know what you said about this person or that person, how much time you spent on Facebook versus how much time you spent reading your Bible. You tell me why would Jesus do this? It's because we're sinners. And the wages of sin is death. And if the Lord Jesus Christ is going to ransom a people for God from every tribe and people and language and nation, then He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and then be delivered by them into the hands of men who will then kill Him and then on the third day be raised. Because that's what the Father said do. The world's greatest fairy tale author could not dream up such a king. So, how do we respond to such a king? We bow to him, we submit to his authority, humble yourself under his mighty scepter, obey his commands, take on the mission of the kingdom, engage in the battles of the kingdom. I told some of you last week and even this week, I'm, as I see, in the, in the 
what we might call the public marketplace of ideas, members of our church engaging in kingdom-centered conversations, debates, ideas, battles. Um, I believe our king is proud. But it's not going to get easier. It's going to get more and more difficult for us to stand up. But remember, he's won. He's victorious. So as we come to the Lord's table, we have to examine ourselves and see if He is in fact our Savior. He is the only Savior. Yes, the question is, is He your Savior? Have you put your faith and your trust in Him? Is the Son of Man your Lord and your Master? Do you know Him? If not, then today is the day of salvation. As a minister of the Gospel, I have been given the authority to command As ministers of the gospel, as you go out, you've been given the authority to command. I command you to repent and believe the gospel. Bow down to King Jesus. You don't make Him Lord. You don't make Him King. He is. He's taking dominion. All of His enemies are being gathered under His feet and being made a footstool. Repent and believe the gospel. If you are a Christian, then as the elements are past for the supper, then let's take a few moments and meditate on the glory of the Son of Man, the humility of the Son of Man as His body was broken, and His willingness to suffer for our sake.